Bibles out and remain standing as Pastor Logan comes. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And we will read verses 21 through 30. Hear now the word of the Lord. So he had said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, Many believed in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this glorious morning in which we can gather on the Lord's Day as your people. We thank thank you that through Christ we have been made your people, that it is through his death, burial, and resurrection that we have received pardon and come to know who he is and who you are. Father, I pray that as we dig into this passage that comes with it, a very severe warning, that you'd give us ears to hear. Lord, I particularly pray for those among us who are not submitted to your will, have not believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, have not professed him as Lord, and are not living for his glory. I pray that they would hear the seriousness with which their soul stands. And Lord, that they would flee from their sin and run to Christ. So Lord, would you speak, speak through this passage this morning. Speak through your word to the hearts of your people and to the hearts of those who don't know you. And would you do the work that only you can do. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. Well, the more I dove into the text this week, the more I realized how much there is to be discussed in the verses before us. Jesus has here laid down a weighty warning to his audience, and I actually want to camp out here in the first four verses, just down to verse 24, to consider the full weight of what he has actually said. One of the most important aspects of preaching that I think has often been lost in recent decades is the need for warning. 
Historically, I think in an over-response to some of the fire and brimstone preaching of the 19th century and the early 20th century, the church went a different direction and often sought to avoid those subjects just altogether. The warnings of judgment and the realities of hell have largely disappeared from American pulpits. The problem with that is it's simply not biblical. We are called to warn. We are called to preach the full counsel of God. As Paul said in Colossians 1, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We must proclaim Him, and we must teach, but we also must warn. And the preachers who refuse to warn their hearers are like the prophets that Jeremiah spoke of, who said to the people, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. The fact is, this has always been the duty of those who speak God's word, from the prophets to the apostles, and now even to the pastors. We are to faithfully warn of the dangers of sin and the realities of judgment that are to come. And here in this text, Jesus takes up this very purpose as he speaks to the Jews, and as he speaks to his, to his own people. In fact, Jesus is very much doing what God had commissioned Ezekiel to do as he charged him to function as a watchman. Some of the very language that Jesus uses here is drawn from Ezekiel chapter 3. In Ezekiel 3, God said this to the prophet. He said, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, the wicked man shall die in his iniquity. He shall die in his sin. But his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered yourself. As we will see today, this warning from Christ is a divine warning. And there is nothing more terrifying than what Jesus is here warning these Jews of in this passage. And these words are not just true for the Jews who are present. These, true, these words are true for everybody. But along with that, he not only warns them, but he also issues them the remedy by which they may escape the full effects of his warning. Here he offers hope to anyone who will listen. Essentially, Jesus here is preaching the gospel to his audience in rather sobering terms. As we look at this, we're going we're to break this up just by considering the warning and then the remedy. And we need to understand that here, Jesus lays out the most important truth for every single soul to consider. And I pray and hope that we will feel the weight of what is said here today. And that in that, we will also get a glimpse of how merciful God truly is. But especially if you are here today and you are, you are not trusting in Christ, if you have never truly listened to a sermon before, you need to listen to this one. Nothing is more urgent for you 
than what Christ says in this passage today. Don't leave here without considering these words. So let's read again verses 21 through 24, and let's start with considering this sobering warning. Look at verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said to him, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Three times in four verses, Jesus tells these unbelieving Jews that they will die in their sins. Do you think there's a point he's trying to get across? Jesus was not one to pull punches. He was not one to dance around truth. So often today, so many times today, people try to say that Jesus, his, his way was just to show love. And by that, they, they mean that he was always soft or always encouraging, always gentle. But that is simply not reality. Yes, he was gentle. And yes, the way of Christ is love. He is love. But love always speaks the truth. And in certain contexts, in certain situations, the truth can be very hard truth. The fact is, no one spoke more of judgment for sin and even of hell than did Jesus. And here he is in a very straightforward manner warning his hearers of their coming destiny if they do not repent, if they do not turn, if they do not trust in him. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, undoubtedly, this was, this was deeply offensive to this Jewish audience, especially to the leadership that he's addressing here, which would mostly be Pharisees, because they can't, they can't even fathom themselves to be in the category of a sinner. To them, they were, they were utterly separated and, and above anyone who was a sinner, The sinners were not even worthy to be in their presence, and they would not soil themselves by being placed in their presence. In fact, one of the chief complaints about Jesus by the Pharisees was his association with sinners. You see this over and over in the gospel. Matthew chapter 9, for example, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or Luke 15, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They just could not fathom even engaging those that they had deemed to be sinners. Because in their mind, they were in a different category. They were the righteous. In fact, this went so far that as we will see in the very next chapter, they put themselves in a very different category than even Jesus, is they speak to him with scorn and call him a sinner. John 9, 24, we know that this man is a sinner. 
But here Jesus confronts them with the truth that it is they who will die in their sins if they continue on the path that they are on. Now for us, we look back at this interchange with Jewish leadership and we think that this is an obvious reality, especially as Christians who have been trained in this thought, especially with our view of the Pharisees. We see them as the quintessential bad guys of Scripture. But remember, that was not the view of them in the first century. It wasn't just that they were, had this view of themselves. Every one of the Jews viewed them in this way. They all viewed them as the righteous. They were the holiest men of the Jews. These were the men that you were supposed to aspire to be like. These were the beloved examples of what it means to follow God. These were the men you, you pointed your children towards. Be like them. So Jesus' denunciation of them would have been shocking to all. He's putting them in the same boat as those who live in a total disregard for the law of God and for the traditions. In the same boat as tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is saying, apart from Him, like everyone else, they too will die in their sin. No distinctions here from Jesus. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in the book of Romans. I mean, this was a problem for the Jews. And for that reason, Paul spends the first three chapters of that masterful epistle showing that all, both Jews and Gentiles alike, are under the wrath of God without distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whereas he says in Romans 3, 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have all already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. The fact is, what, what Jesus says here to these Jews is true for every single person who has ever lived, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, slave or free, no matter who you are, apart from Him, you will die in your sins. And the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to die in your sins? Or, or backing up even further, perhaps we should ask the question, what is sin? Sometimes I think we use this language so often that we, we forget its significance. And sometimes I think we inadvertently downplay it and comfort ourselves by saying things like, hey, we're all just sinners, right? It's no big deal. It's just part of what it means to be human. Well, actually, no. It is a big deal, and it is not it is not a part of what it means to be human. It's a part of what it means to be fallen, not human. To be human is to be made in the image of God. It is to live as those who are created by Him and for Him. Humanity was created for His glory. We were created and given life by Him to walk with Him to know Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, to love Him, to obey Him, to be in fellowship with God, with the Creator, with the One who is eternally good, 
with the one who is infinitely holy. We were made to delight in Him, and we were made to reflect His glory. We were not made to be in sin. Being a sinner is not a consequence of God's creational design. Sin is the result of our having walked away from God's created purposes for mankind. It is us turning our back on the God who made us, forsaking Him and His goodness, and embracing anything and everything that is contrary to Him. This is why R.C. Sproul rightly defines sin as cosmic treason. And though we sin against each other in an infinite number of ways, all sin is ultimately against the God who gave us life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Which is a fine definition as long as we understand that the law of God was always aimed at the heart, not just outward conformity. Anything that does not meet perfect conformity to the law of God is sin. Because it is God who defines what is good. And anything falling short of that is by definition evil. Sin is evil. All sin. No matter how great or how small in our eyes, in our estimation, all sin is evil. Because it is contrary to who God is. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. He is the standard of good. He is what we were created for. And because of that, because He is what we were created for, and who we were created to reflect, there is a sin that is darker than all other sins. There is a sin that gives rise to all other sins. There is a sin that is at the root cause of what it means to be in the very state of sin. And actually, if you will notice here, it seems to be that Jesus is referencing that. Jesus makes this declaration three times to these Jews, but the first time he says it, he speaks of sin in the singular. You will die in your sin. The next two are both in the plural. You will die in your sins, speaking of all of the guilt, of all of the transgressions that you have ever committed. But what does he mean by this first singular sin? He is referring to the state of sin that humanity exists in. Well, what is that? How do we define that? Well, you can get a picture of this by understanding its opposite. If you think about it, what is the greatest good that man can do? What is the greatest commandment? How did Jesus answer that question? Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the great and first commandment because this is what humanity was created for. To know and to love God. 
And so if that is the first and greatest commandment, then by definition, the greatest sin is to violate the greatest commandment. To not love Him. To reject Him. To reject the God who made you. To reject the only one who is infinitely good and infinitely worthy. That is the sin that is above all other sins. That is the sin that has thrown humanity into a state of sin. Adam and Eve's choice to eat as the representatives of all of humanity was a choice not to love and obey God, but rather to reject Him. Every other sin is a manifestation of that sin, the failure to love God. Or said more bluntly, every other sin is an expression of rejection and even hatred toward the Creator. Every sin is cosmic treason. And because of the fall of humanity away from God, that is who we are. We are born in a state of separation from and hatred toward God. That's what, it, that's what it means to be a, a sinner. It is to function as an enemy of the one true God. To live as a sinner is to live according to your natural bent against God. And you can, you can cover that up with external religiosity as the Jews did, but that is the reality of the fallen heart. So we need to understand that being a sinner is a repulsive thing. It's not something that we should find comfort in by saying things like, oh, we're just all sinners. The Jews at least understood that. They just didn't think they were in that category. But apart from Christ, we are all in that state of sin, separated from God, functioning as His enemy. And to die in that state is what he means by dying in your sin. Singular. If you die in your sin, the chief sin of rejecting the one true God, then you die in your sins. Plural. You die bearing the guilt of all of your sins. And that has eternal ramifications. As Jesus said, I am going away you will seek me and you will die in your sin where I am going you cannot come now we've seen Jesus say this once before back in chapter 7 he's issuing a prophecy here about his departure that was coming soon and it was this was all happening around the feast of the tabernacle which is about six months out from the Passover which for Jesus would be the last Passover, the Passover in which He would become the sacrificial Lamb of God. And He knows His time is coming soon. And He's forewarning of that reality. But back in chapter 7, He said it a little bit different. He said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to Him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. But here He brings explicitly out the implications to these Jews. You will seek me, and you will die in your sin. 
Not finding Jesus is equivalent to dying in one's sin. Now, there's various thoughts on what Jesus means here by saying, you will seek me to these Jews. But I think it's pretty clear, actually. I think he's quite clearly playing off the prophet Isaiah once again. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 55, which has been referenced once in this back and forth between Christ and the Jews. Isaiah 55 opens with the words, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Jesus clearly played off that back in chapter 7 when he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, showing that he is the fulfillment. The words of the, the prophet Isaiah are weighing heavy in the background here, all through this, this book, actually. But just a few verses after that gracious invitation in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I believe without question this is what Jesus has in mind when he says, You will seek me and you will not find me. You will seek me and you will die in your sins. Because the religious Jews would in fact seek the Lord. They will seek His pardon. They will seek His compassion. They will seek His favor. They will seek His blessing. But they will not find it. Because they have rejected the very one that they are seeking. To this day, religious Orthodox Jews are seeking the Lord while simultaneously rejecting God's self-revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, the God that they are seeking is not the true God. They have rejected Him by rejecting Christ, which is why they remain in the state of sin, the ultimate sin of rejecting God. And John has already said this. He said this back in chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Or even later in that chapter, verse 36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The reality is you cannot find God nor the blessings of God apart from Christ. You cannot reject Christ and receive anything from God, especially pardon or forgiveness. These blessings come through Christ and through Christ alone. He is the Lord to be sought while He may be found. And these Jews are here rejecting the very Lord they proclaim to be seeking, the Lord who is standing right in front of them. And because of that, they will die in their sin. And what's more, Jesus tells them, where I'm going, you you cannot come. Well, where is he going? As he said back in chapter 7, he's returning to the Father. He's returning to glory. 
to the glory that he had before the ages began. And just like the last time Jesus said this, the Jews not only misunderstand this warning, but they resort to mockery. So the Jews said to him, verse 22, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. Last time they suggested that he would go seek a following among the dispersion, among the Gentiles. An idea that was repulsive and degrading to the Jewish mind. This time, they make an even more repulsive suggestion, which is that he is going to kill himself. They obviously did not think that Jesus was actually going to commit suicide. This was a a rhetorical attempt to slander and discredit him, showing the, the absolute contempt for which they held for Christ. Because for the Jews there was actually not much more contemptible than suicide. In Jewish culture, when someone committed suicide, they left the corpse unburied until after dark. And there was no public mourning for that person. They believed that that person was barred from the ages to come and was guaranteed damnation. And so they are here suggesting that the place where Jesus would go, where they could not was to his own damnation. Now, there are several ironies to this statement that must be seen. One is, much like last time when they mocked Christ, there's actually a kernel of truth in their words. Last time they suggested that he would seek a following among the Gentiles. When the truth is, that's exactly what Christ has done. We are here this morning as Gentiles because of that reality. Upon His ascension to glory, the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth, to the whole world, and the Gentiles now enjoy the promises given to the Jews through Christ. Well, here, this time, they suggest that He will kill Himself. While Jesus, of course, did not commit suicide, He did indeed lay down His life of His own volition in order to grant salvation to all who believe. He's going to make that really clear in John 10. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So again, in ironic fashion, the Jews spoke better than they knew. As they unknowingly speak of the realities of salvation, they would be excluded from. But the other irony here is that it is they, not him, who are going to commit actual suicide. For to continue in unbelief for anyone is spiritual Suicide. The Jews were mocking Jesus, throwing out the abhorrent suggestion that he was going to kill himself. All the while, it is they who are on that path. The path of spiritual and eternal suicide. Damnation was their trajectory, not his. And this is what it means to die in your sins. To die in your sins means you not only die physically, you die eternally. 
you experience what the Bible calls the second death. The Apostle John wrote about this in the book of Revelation. Pastor Brent read it this morning. Revelation 21.8 But as for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. As Jesus said in the Gospels, it is the place where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is the place where its inhabitants are always dying but never dead, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Revelation 14. Those who reject God with finality will be rejected by God with finality. Hell is God's final and eternal no to the practice of sin. And to continue in unbelief is to subject yourself to that reality. It is to die in your sins, bearing your own guilt for sin. It is, in fact, spiritual suicide. To die in your sins is the most terrifying thing a person can ever face. This is why Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That reality stands over all of humanity at all times. And the sad fact is we are more prone to be repulsed by the realities of hell than we are by the realities of sin. But the truth is hell only gives us a picture of how evil sin truly is. Sin is evil beyond your wildest imaginations. We often don't feel it. We often don't see it because we are all the time surrounded by it, numb to it in the sinful world. And that is why, second only to being in the very presence of God, second to that alone, the most glorious thing about the coming kingdom is the absence of sin. Think about that. There is coming a kingdom in which there will be no sin. There is a kingdom in which there is only light and no darkness at all. Where the inhabitants are all perfect reflections of its maker. Where the Lord dwells with his people who are no longer sinners but have been made perfectly holy where love and righteousness rule the land and nothing to the contrary ever even enters. And the fact that God created a plan to take guilty sinners, pardon them from their sins against Him, make them new creatures in Christ in order to prepare them for that coming reality is the most glorious thing that could ever be conceived by the mind of man. 
You couldn't make up anything more glorious if you tried. The question is, how was it obtained? How was hell avoided and heaven obtained? Well, the remarkable thing here, in the face of just utter contempt, Jesus still points them to that hope. Even here, he gives them the remedy in this warning. Look what he says. Look at verse 23. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. In response to their slanderous suggestion, the merciful Savior keeps coming back to the same truths. These Jews held themselves to be the righteous ones bound for the kingdom and Christ to be the sinner bound for damnation. But Jesus once again brings clarity to who He is in reality to who they are. And He does that by going back to His origin and even His nature in contrast to them in these two parallel statements. They are from below. They are of this world. He is from above. He is not of this world. They have antithetical origins and antithetical natures. Their natures and origins are contrary to one another. Christ is of a heavenly origin and of a divine nature. He is in the world, not because He is of the world, but because He has come down from above in an act of mercy. But by contrast, to be from below and to be of this world is to be a part of the fallen order. It is to be a part of the system in this world that exists in rebellion to its creator. And Jesus is here saying, wake up! Realize who you are. Realize what you need. The fact is, no one, no one who is from below and no one who is of this world will be permitted into the kingdom that is from above in the kingdom that is not of this world. This is why Jesus laid the, the foundation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born from above. It is those who are born of God from above who have been made fit for the kingdom that is from above. And that is only given to those who receive Christ, to those who believe in His name. And John covered that in the prologue. In John 1.9, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
who were not born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And like Jesus, those who are born of God, born from above, are no longer of this world. It's exactly what Jesus says about His disciples in John 17 in His prayer. He says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Those who believe in Christ are of another world, fit for another world, the world to come. And it is in that vein that Jesus is here telling these Jews the same thing, pointing to the same hope. He says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Believe! Now, to to understand this, we we have to take a little bit of issue with this translation. Because this is another place where behind this, in the Greek, are the words, ego eimi, I am. There is no predicate. He is not there. It's just I am, unless you believe that I am. Now, I am, he can be a faithful translation in certain contexts. But given this context and where this chapter is going... I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. Because this chapter and scene is going to end with Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. Ego me, Removing all doubt. And the Jews will pick up rocks to stone him because they finally pick up what he's been saying all along. For him to say that they must believe that he is ego eimi, I am, is a direct claim to be God, to be Yahweh, to be the self-existent God who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. In Exodus 3, when he says, say to the people, I am has sent you. And the reality is now the great I am has not sent another, but he has come himself in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Never, ever get over the reality that God became a man and entered our realm in order to save guilty sinners. He is not from here, but He came down to us. He is not of this world, but He entered our world. And He did it to save those who have rejected him. He did it to love his enemies. He did it to save sinners. As Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. To understand that verse's significance, you need to again remind yourself of the repulsive nature of the word sinners. He's not talking about victims of this world. He is talking about enemies of God, enemies of Christ, practitioners of evil. Christ came into this world to save them, to save us. And not only did He enter our sinful realm in order to save a sinful people, but even beyond that, He saved us by taking on the shame of the cross. By dying our death. By paying sin's penalty. By bearing God's wrath against our sin. 
He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He died in our sins so that we would not die in our sins, but rather so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And more than that, He rose from the grave and ascended to the kingdom that is above so that in Him we might rise with Him and inherit His inheritance. There is no greater story than this church. This is it. God has done it all. In Christ, He has given us every spiritual blessing. All we have and all we need is Christ. And if you are here and you have not yet believed that, Christ is presently offering these realities to you this day. If you will just believe, if you will repent of your sin and trust in the Savior. As Isaiah said, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. God will forgive you in Christ no matter the extent of your sin, no matter what you have done, forgiveness can be found in Him this day. Run to Christ. You have no other hope. There is no other way of salvation. It is Christ. And Christ alone. Run to Him, dear sinner. Don't delay and don't wait. His arms are open to you now. Let's pray. Father, how could we ever thank you for a salvation so great as this? You truly are worthy of all worship, of all honor, of all glory. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your son. We thank you that you have not left us in our sin. If you would count our transgressions, who could stand? Lord, would you bring more? Bring more to the saving power of Christ. Let them see your mercy in him. Grant them repentance. Grant them grace. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name.